0: together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to ResistBot Live.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. It is October 24th, 2021. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist About Live. Welcome and thank you for joining us again. Um, I'm joined with one of my favorite favorites, Christine Liu. We've also we've also got our good friend Athena Fulet. She will be monitoring the comments for you guys. Um, Just want to remind you that we are here this Sunday and every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can watch us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube or Twitch. We would really love it if you would subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch. We don't want to have to do cute TikTok dances to convince you to do it. I have bad knees and I have no coordination. None of us will like it. So please come join us over there. Um, Hi, Christine. (laughs) Christine. Hey, happy Sunday. <laughs> happy Sunday. Um, last week, I had made an amazing conversation with Dr. Nancy Retskin with Asylum 101, which I think was really just, it, it was a wealth of information, which I appreciate, but the information that we got showed me you know, we that we we're just scratching the surface on what it means to understand immigration and asylum, especially how as it pertains to uh, the United States. Um, today we have, um, we'll be talking about personal experiences, our American stories, one of which you have, we'll also, um, be hearing from an amazing woman named Cece, who is still in the process, um, who is still, you know, in in the process of obtaining her permanent residency here. Um, I am so sorry. (laughs) My computer blinked for a second. So, Christine, um, as we get in, are we? Do we have Athena with us? We are. I'm right here. Hi, Hi everyone.
0: How's it going? Good. Good. Now it's a party. Happy Sunday.
1: We're we're Hallie welling it. We're relying on the power of three. (laughs) Okay. Like it? Nice, strong. Number, love it. Um, so, Athena, you'll be manning the comments for us I will. and helping. I'll be staffing you. the chat
0: and answering any questions, sort of prompting our listeners and viewers to add their comments and suggestions as we go along. It's um, really great. Happy to be here. That um, we're continuing the conversation about immigration, as that is we are a country of immigrants. So having folks. Uh, perspectives in terms of their own immigration story to the United
1: States is important. And I look forward to to hearing more. Thank you so much. And let's, rather than hearing a whole bunch of small talk from me, I would like to dive right in, Christine, um, to talking about you because you have an American story that we would love to hear.
2: Great. Um, So I was born in Taiwan um, and I came here actually uh, to the U.S. when I was just two years old. So, um, you know, my parents immigrated in the 70s. And I often talk about that because uh, there are a couple of narratives over the years that have really um, led me to kind of explore this, what it means to be an immigrant or, or be more conscious of how this group of Americans are viewed and at least from my lens and experience. And one of the notions that I have uh, sought to dispel over the recent years is, um, you know, that there's this different kind of immigrant, there is legal versus illegal, like we talked about in the last show. And what really has bothered me about that is in looking into how I arrived here, right. Going way back to the seventies, you realize, um, it wasn't too long ago that people that looked like me were completely legally banned from even entering the country, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, so growing up, we didn't really, you know, um, I wasn't really conscious of that. That's not what we kind of, you know, as you know, our history books are not very, um, you know, uh, informative when it comes to certain parts of our history. And that was one of them. So, So once I realized that it was really, because of the civil rights movement that there was a wave of immigrants from Asia that was allowed to come in the seventies. My parents and I being beneficiaries of that, that really kind of, felt less othered. Does that make sense? Like we're always thought that, you know, the communities that we, um, we we always feel like, okay, we're new. So keep your head down. Don't say anything kind of a build that American dream in your, um, you know, respective, I guess, bubbles, if you will. And um, this feeling when realizing that, wow, it's because of African-Americans that Asian-Americans are even able to, um, you know, have the ability to come here again, um, that really... Set me on a journey of okay, then what else is it that I don't know, or what if I what else have, have I been blind to? Then what things are, do we have more in common than feeling like we are othered all the time? So, so that's the part of um, you know my journey that I'm really present to now. Um, the other part is just kind of trying to find the commonalities because um, there's so many reasons, especially as the perpetual foreigner, if you will, for us to be othered. Regardless of different communities. And here's the part that we all see and we've talked about before for us to be wedge issues, if you will. One community is better than the other because they came in this way versus that. So I spend a lot of my time trying to understand the experience, which is why the last episode on Asylum 101 was so informative to me because obviously we touched upon there's a certain privilege that comes from. Me being two years old and having the luxury and privilege of uh, a visa that allowed me to hop on a plane with my father and mother, you know, um, and and arrive in the U.S. and um, and go through the system and the motions um, versus those that are just for... Historical reasons or just for legality reasons, coming in a different way, and um, but once we arrive here, the American stories that I am really inspired by is is this commonality of once we are allowed to come in in whatever way we come in, um, you see this generational shift um, this notion one thing that used to really annoy me when I was younger was hearing the why don't Chinese uh, Americans assimilate specific to my community why don't Taiwanese Americans why don't those from Hong Kong assimilate because um, you know I grew up in a part of Los Angeles that you know to this day my parents don't speak the language and it's not until recent years that I said okay this is how it works Um, you know first wave of immigrants don't even have time to assimilate. Uh, We are so busy just trying to get our bearings in a country that we really want to be part of, learning the language, learning the culture. Um, And what's beautiful is to see as time goes by the next generation emerge. And this has been in our history. And so why wouldn't I want that for other groups and communities? And why wouldn't I want to be uh, cognizant of that? Now that, you know, um, we see folks coming in from uh, Afghanistan, even um, if we're talking the biplane immigrants versus those that are on the border in, you know, of Mexico coming from different countries. Uh, I think it's really important for us to have like this tell stories and to also be cognizant of others.
1: Christine, when you you mentioned something earlier about um, the disparity of who comes in, how, and there's also the presumption of of based on based on our races, on how our race kind of can determine how someone assumes that you came into the country did you find yourself having to um disabuse people of certain notions in that respect
2: right. yes and i often actually talk about my own like you know if we want to get on the topic of privilege there is you have to acknowledge that certain groups are treated differently in how they arrive in this country and i feel very lucky i always say ignorance is bliss I grew up in a part of America that is predominantly Asian and Latino. And I say that because I grew up with the full um, I guess scope of my culture at home and also being immersed in you know Latino immigrant culture uh, mostly Mexican immigrant culture my parents had you know a small Chinese restaurant that they opened uh, in East Los Angeles and you know I have memories of being that Chinese takeout kid that generation of kids that did their homework after school in the back of a Chinese restaurant so I say all that because there was always a comfort level around me as to who I was. Um, you know, things that I realized later on, not all immigrants when they try to assimilate in America don't have the luxury of doing because, you know, they are um, few and far between in other communities. And that really reflect is reflected in then their viewpoint of how they, um, um, you know, how they grow up. So I definitely see that there is definitely a disparity in terms of how different groups are treated. And I think sometimes that's by design, but maybe that's a whole other show.
1: <laughs> I, I I think so. I think when you when you mentioned um, how much of the civil rights movement impacted your ability to immigrate to the U.S., how did that change your your view? And given that you, I mean, that, that you were two years old, you were you you started school here and things like that. But how did that change? Your view as you got old, and as you had that knowledge with the experience of immigrants, and how it can be sort of a deliberate uh, method. Oh yeah, of- I with think
2: they call of- us the mo- we're a wedge. I mean, like, like I, I try to dance around it, but I, I, what I realize that we are we meaning Asian Americans. Um, you know, in recent years, i've we are <laughs> conveniently so uh, leveraged when it comes to um, you know, the minimizing and marginalization of other groups. And I'll be really um straightforward on that. You'll hear me say that on Twitter. A lot of people don't know that Asian Americans, actually seventy percent of us um, uh, t- support affirmative action. You will never know it by the narrative, in the media, and also by those that have an interest in um leveraging our community and you know almost using us as a front to go forward and do things like sue harvard or sue um you know yale university or different um you know um, communities and really raise that issue and you really become uh yeah you really become present to the fact like hey hold on a second um why are we being leveraged to be, you know, the d- divisive uh, wedge into that? Actually, I support and believe in now that I am older and I know better. Right. So that's just one example. But time and time again, um, this is something that has, that really weighs on me. Um, a majority of, uh, you know, uh, it, it's no surprise that a majority of Asian Americans, if you pay attention, AAPI community being the fastest growing voter demographic now, we are largely skewing Democrat when our, Traditionally, we were counted on both as either being independent or leaning more Republican. Right. There's a reason for that. In the last election, you know, and I pay attention to this because my son is 16 years old. He'll be voting age in the next presidential election. 86 percent of black youth voted Democrat, 83 percent of Asian-American youth voted Democrat. So this is an interesting trend that I, 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 you know, again, maybe another show I would love to focus on because in communities where there have traditionally been a large population of Asian immigrants over the last several decades, now they are voters and they are becoming more vocal. People such as myself, um, you know, um, are advocating for ourselves and we're really realizing that, um, you know, our politics isn't really in what our parents thought that they were supposed to follow. Right. And so there's a sense of agency there. And I
1: think it'll be interesting
2: to see the effects of that.
1: And I have one more question in terms of of family and incoming here community. Did you, when you arrived here, did your family have a bit of their own community support or were you somewhat isolated, how did that um, work out for you? So I believe,
2: again, the criticism growing up being in the othering of us as a community being, why don't Asians assimilate? Right. And now that I am in a position where I look back, I am so glad that my parents, when they arrived in the U S sought to raise us in a community of other Taiwanese Americans and Chinese Americans so that we could better assimilate. So, you know, uh, uh, this is a recurring thread um, amongst all immigrant communities. It's, it's not the assimilation of the first generation. We're just trying to get our bearings when we just get here, but it's the possibilities and the promise of what the reason why they came over more often than not is for the children. And so, um, yeah, so I think that makes a big difference. Uh, I could see that in my first year of college when I went to Boston University. And for the first time, I came across other friends um, who were Asian American, but had grown up in predominantly white communities or communities that did not have a large number of them where they were often the only one. Jokingly, they were the Asian population in their town in Alabama, for example, you know. And so um, there is, uh, I think, a benefit to, uh, you know, why we see um, these communities grow and these, um, you know, uh, immigrant communities um, are a source of, uh, you know, and it's, it's been through history. I mean, look at the Chinatowns all through history. Um, that's indicative of that. Um, I think those are very important parts of our our. Our society, actually.
1: Uh, Do we have any? Um, thank you, Christine, um, for that. First of all, just wanted to touch base with you, um, Athena. Do we have any folks? Any questions that we?
0: No, no, we don't. It's pretty quiet thus far in the uh, different chat sections. So,
1: I mean, C- Christine gave us gave us a lot. <laughs> <That was laughs> a lot to work forward. with. But I think that's a statement on. Also, how common that is for for smaller groups, um, minority, non-white groups in this country, how there's just a common thread that I think all of us can relate to. We um, spoke with Cece, who joined us. We have some pre-recorded content that we spoke with Cece yesterday, who had a very... um, a, a, a very different story, a very different experience uh, from, from Christine. One of the things about immigration that we sometimes the American sentiment is, oh, they want to come over here and blah, blah, blah. These are people who are leaving their homes. You know, this is, and leaving home is a very difficult, sometimes hard fought decision to make. And so CC's story was very important and when we deal with someone who is leaving home when they don't necessarily want to those events can be traumatic and so I do want to um, issue a content warning for the following uh, for for this next segment um, there there will be mentions of um, sexual uh, sexual assault, trauma and violence. Um, but I think Cece has a very important story that I think we can all benefit from in learning what the process is like in in immigrating to America. So we're joined by phone with um one of our guests, Cece, who is currently in her process, her immigration process, right now. Hi, CC. welcome.
3: Hi, Mel. Hi, Susan. Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much for joining us and for trusting us with your story. We really appreciate Absolutely. it. Thank you. Um, so, can you give us a little bit of the background of what your process was like in coming here, in, in coming over, Um particularly in in the realms of how you were treated, you know, from from what your expectations were to how you were treated when you actually got here?
3: Definitely. Um, Before I go into the process, um, I will just dive a little bit on the reasons why my family decided to move to the United States. Um, Before I was born, my dad who is a medical doctor and a professor in family medicine um, was very active in politics, not um, a politician, but he was fighting for democracy in my country. And um, in 1984, the then head of state who is now the president of the country prescribed the Nigerian medical association as a terrorist organization. And um Soon after that, we um, started having, when I was born, my early memories um, was um, another head of state who came in, who was friends with that head of state, um, sent someone to find a way to deal with my father. And one of the only ways they saw was to um, find a way to kill his children. Um, Unfortunately, Um, for me and my sister, we went on a retreat with my father and instead of killing us, they did something much worse and sexually assaulted me and my sister instead. Um, so for years we kept having problems till, um, we would get the, like a secret service kind of thing coming to our house. Um, always asking for tapes, always asking for, you know, different things. And my, of course they couldn't find anything. And they kept threatening to shoot us and shoot our dogs. Um, but that did not, you know, they would take away cassette tapes. They will take away papers. That kept happening till um, the head of state died. And even when he died before, like some days before he died, my dad had to leave the country. He went to England. Um, when he died, my dad stayed there for a few weeks and came back. It was relatively safe for us to be there again. But when this new head of state came in, we started getting fresh threats. Um, I was in the country for longer because I had a job. Um, I had a business back in my country. And um, I was doing, you know, fairly well for myself. I used to, you know, come over to the United States for holidays, um, even though I had my brother here and um, my mom used to be, my mom was here. So I just used to come in. And um, I would tell you that um, coming in was a different experience. I would get, um, like, office, um, airline attendants look down on me. And um, when I wanted to give them a tip, they'll look down on me like I couldn't afford it, which was laughable. I was like, how much is it? Um, but in 2015, when it became more dangerous, especially for me, I was the only one left. My dad knew it was going to get dangerous, so he was, you know, he left. Everybody left, but I was like, "Why should I leave? I have my whole life here. I have my dog. I have my car. I have a an apartment. I'm living my life." Um. There was then I saw that they poisoned my dog and killed my dog. Mm-hmm. Um. They stationed two people in front of my house to come with um, machetes. Um, That was when I knew I had to leave the country. I said staying in, yeah, please go ahead. I'm
1: sorry. No, no, please don't apologize. I just think it's very important that, you know, it's pointed out that this is, you had a life in in your home that like you said, this was your home and leaving and going through this process was a difficult decision. So when you arrived at the point of, of, of agreeing with your family that it was no longer safe, what was the process like getting here and and, and going through the process of, of, of obtaining citizenship or permanent residency?
3: I can tell you that um, I didn't think when I was packing my things, I mean, um, even till today, I left important things back home. Albums, um, pictures of my childhood that I could never get again. Um, there were a lot of things that I left behind. I just literally packed up and left. I was pregnant at that time. And because I, I couldn't go to a hospital, I couldn't get medical care because I was scared. I did not want anybody to harm me or my child. So, and um, I kept getting flashbacks of getting. Um, sexually assaulted, and um, I knew that I wanted my, I didn't want that for my daughter. Mm-hmm. So um, I literally just packed up my things and left. Um, before I decided to, my dad literally used his life savings to um, buy us a house where we stay now. Um, so it was easier for me to literally just pack in some things. I literally left with two boxes. And a backpack. That was all I came to the United States with because this I had to um, give my car out to someone. Um, My business, I I tried as much as possible to, you know, make it work from the United States, but with time difference and everything, I lost my business. And of course, I I lost my job. Um, So, my Process was I had to come to the United States to file for asylum. That was, that was the process for me and my entire family. Um, it's, it's not been an easy process. I can tell you, it's been um, time consuming. It's been financially consuming because when people actually think that when you come into this country, you have everything. Everything is just going to work out automatically. That's a lie. It's not um you have to get lawyers you have to um understand the system because it is complicated it's not easy um and people right now all me and my family we're doing is just literally working to pay uh our legal fees um it is a strain on the family but we're trying all we can to make it work you know um we didn't we didn't know a lot about how the system works, so um, when we first got in, we had a lawyer um, who was trying to guide us on the process. You know how to you know, go about uh, writing affidavits. You know, it, like I said, it's a really long process. Um, we are still going through it. We are trying to follow this process no matter how long it takes. I have been in this country since 2016, and I can tell you that till now, I am still waiting. Um, the good thing is um, while you're here, it, it is a long time, but you you will get um, a walk authorization that you can use to um, walk. Um, and, you know, it doesn't. And the good thing about the work authorization um, when you're pending an asylum case is that you can work anywhere. It's not mm-hmm. like ah one b or, you know, one of the employer based um, visas. So you can work anywhere. And great. I, I was able to work. Um, like I said, we're still in this process. It is long. It is financially, actually it's more emotionally consuming because you don't know what anybody's going to say. They might send you to an immigration judge. And um, if you do go to an immigration judge, you literally at the mercy of one person listening to your story and saying, okay, I think um, you you are fearful for your life and um, you should remain in the United States. On the other hand, the person can also look at you and say, oh, I don't think that you you are a victim and i think you should leave the united states
1: so um, about that can i ask a question of you yeah. um do you find this do you find this um to be there to be parts that are unnecessarily difficult for you roadblocks that are somewhat um that aren't necessary, but potentially roadblocks roadblocks that you face as a black woman. And if if I could tag on to that question, um, when you,
0: from what I understand about the asylum process, when you get here, um, that process makes a lot of presumptions about your access to information, and technology, and things like that. So. As you were coming in, and as you're answering Mel's question, if you could speak to that too about just even having an understanding of what was
4: required of you.
3: And yeah, so, we are actually required to have as much evidence as we can get during this uh, during the process. The thing is that the evidence might not be there. It doesn't mean we're not. I'm not coming here to tell you a story or a lie. And obviously these things happened to me. These things happened to my family. And um, one person can look at you and say, I don't think it happened to you. I don't think it happened to your family simply because you might not have, say, a note that said that I was sexually assaulted tw- um, 20-something years ago.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Or it, I have to bring as little, I have to um, invite uh a veterinarian to tell the, um, to tell whoever that, oh, the dog was really poisoned. You have to do every nitty gritty thing to gather as much evidence, to make this, to make them believe you that this is the reason why you need to stay in the United States. And it's different from a family based. Um, visa, or it's different from an employer-based visa, it's a different process entirely because unlike the family based, you can get your family to say, oh yes, we're related, and you can go do DNA, and it shows that, yes, you're related. But me having to relay those experiences that this is the reason why I cannot go back to this country anymore, it's it's not, and I, I don't think they, they will look at it like, oh yeah, uh, they still look at it. They have this. I don't think it's true. The where we stay currently, like the rates of um, immigration cases getting approved is one of the lowest in America, and that's really, really like it's scary. I can tell you that's really scary.
1: When it comes to the support. That you need mm-hmm. um, from you know your community members, your 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 community members who may be citizens. What is it that you would say is your greatest greatest need in terms of just support? Like you said, this is a very emotionally charged and difficult process. So, to the extent that we can't change the system right now? What type of support can we lend to you and people like you who are are in these situations just trying to make their way through?
3: So the thing is, um, for people like me who have been able to, say, get a good job, or I would say a relatively good job, you know, if companies can actually reach out, your company can reach out and say, can I, you know, file an employment-based visa for you, it helps. It will, you know, it takes that, you can actually file two cases. You can be on asylum and an employer can file an employer-based visa for you and take you away from that whole, you know, um, getting involved with meeting one person. And a lot of companies don't want to do this. They don't yeah, I understand that they have to say, okay, um, I I don't have any American who can do this job, and that's very understandable. You want to put your citizens first, and yes, it's understandable, but I feel if you've been in a company for a number of years and the company feels that you are a relatively high performer and they want to keep you in the company, um, you know, they should find a way to make you um, stay. It's I think it's just one of the ways that organizations can help. Obviously, individuals cannot help um, people like me in my situation. Um, The only way that people can, you know, obviously help, um, not that we're asking, you know, most of the time is financial support, but, you know, just praying for us or something, you know, things like that, that helps. But really, um, I do, I'm just here hoping and praying Not everyone in my family is on the asylum case. My brother does have a green card. Um, We are, and that's still a long, long process. Mm -hmm. Um, He will become a citizen soon, thankfully. Um, Then he can, even then filing for us takes um, a while. You know, being um, a brother, even though your brother and sister, it takes years for you to actually get the green card that your own brother or or your own sister actually filed for you. With parents, it's easier. If they file for their parents, it's easier. It comes quickly. But if they file for the brother or the sister, it doesn't. So um, that's another way that the system, if if they ever do a law, (laughs) that, you know, as long as your siblings and DNA can show I think there should be a faster process to, you know, ensure the siblings also can join, um, you know, can, be, can um, be on that family-based visa and get a green card faster.
0: Um, Cece, as you were going through this, did you ever feel that the any of the steps in the process were more arbitrary or did you feel like they were pretty straightforward?
3: Um so let me see. Um right now I would say um the process that, that seems a little bit and maybe because of COVID and because of what COVID has um you know brought to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I would say it's the walk authorization process.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I feel it can be a little bit faster. Um, you know, putting a lot of people in limbo. Even though, yes, now they have, you know, I have to give props to the USCIS people. They have, you know, they know that they can't work as fast as they can. So instead, when when you send in an application, they send you a receipt notice also telling you that your work authorization that's expired, You can use that to work for six more months, at least till they um, get you out that new card. Um, You know, if that pro if you've already applied for a work authorization, I believe that it should be faster than four months. Why not try and get it to the person in one month or,
0: you know. And did you, do you have anybody that advocates on your behalf to help you through this process?
3: So we do have lawyers that um, try to advocate for us um, during this process. We did have one before the lawyer actually passed. So we had to change lawyers. And that means um, going all the way from the beginning and following up with this different lawyer so we do have a lawyer that, um, in, and what people don't know is that immigration lawyers in this country are quite expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very expensive. For good reason, yeah. but they are yeah. very expensive.
1: Yeah, we had last week, we had our guest, um, Dr. Nancy Oreskin, who is an immigration lawyer, and it seemed very detailed. And I mm-hmm. know how how costly that, that type of work can be. Yes, it um, is. I want to thank you so much um, for sharing with us today, CeCe. Um, We I, I I know five years has been a long time, and there's really nothing that we can really say, but we're very appreciative of you coming here. And we'll I know I'll definitely, I'm sure Susan, we will have you in our thoughts and 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 be as supportive as we can to you. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you for having me. I, you know, I really enjoy sharing my story with um, people, and hopefully, you know, somebody who had was who in a similar um, situation like me. Yeah. You know, can just hear and you know know that you're not alone because I, I understand the. Emotional roller coaster that this is, but um, definitely you're not alone. And um, this to me is now my country. And um, I do love the United States and the freedom that it has given me. I can talk, and people don't, you know, they're not coming to my house to harm me. Mm-hmm. I am still, I have very bad anxiety and driving my daughter to school. I check mm-hmm. to see if people. Are driving behind me. That's how scared I am. But, you know, mm-hmm. I want this, you know, talking to people actually helps, even though I, I can't say who I am. I want people to understand that. And, you know, other people who think that the immigration system is about people coming to steal jobs or coming to, um, you know, I don't know what they think it is. But we're, there are people like us who are literally running for our lives, literally. And my daughter, I, she was born here. She's an American now. And, I'm, you know, I see her grow up and I'm grateful every day that somebody is not coming to harm my child. Like I said, I, I appreciate this country and I appreciate the opportunities that I have been given. And, um, you know, I hope somebody hears this and knows that you're not alone.
1: Thank you again so much for sharing your story, Cece. It, I, I can't tell you how I'm blown away by how how brave and open you are with sharing with us. So thank you a million times over.
4: I'm, I'm so moved by your story, Cece, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us.
3: Thank you both. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: I Wow
2: Wow <laughs> yeah. No um, words Yeah.
0: And that's part was, of what I think Is really powerful about these, sto- these American stories, right? We all have them It's yeah. just a matter of how far back And how deep you'd like to go in your research And exploration of that yeah. And this is not American history, this is something We are actively working with and dealing with people are living in these truths at the moment and trying to find ways to, to move forward. And I mean, that's part of that greatness of America and that there's space and capacity to
1: do that. So um, I really appreciate her ability to share that story with us. This is, and and when you say present, this is something CC has been dealing with this for five years. You know she's she's made a life here. She's had a child here, and you know, and and still has very much a lot of her past that still comes into her present and how she navigates her day to day. Just just driving. These are things that a lot of people take for granted, and it's unfortunately not as uncommon as it should be. And we're dealing with real people who are in need of real compassion and support and in terms of support um athena i think we have some comments
0: yes we had a couple of comments come through um one just to sort of wrap up the the previous discussions this idea that even though people are sometimes able to get work visas there are very strict requirements to be able to remain employed so it's still very stressful for people who are tethered to that requirement when they're when they're here but obviously that's um Always good advice to be considerate of co-workers who might be struggling in gaps for employment in order to remain in the country. Um, and we did get one question specifically for Christine. Uh, back to the story that she was sharing earlier about her family and her American journey and story. But what does your family miss from back home?
2: Um you know, I, again, I feel lucky because I live in Los Angeles. The thing that a lot of immigrants often miss about back home is the food, the culture, the extended family tied to it. And much of my extended family over the years um, ended up back here, here in the U.S. But I think what, what, uh, what we miss or what I miss is just And this might sound a little heavy, but this awareness over the last 18 months with the rise of anti-Asian sentiment, you become really present to the fact that we've always known we are minorities per se, right? Um, But as I tell my son, as somebody of Asian descent, um, we're actually a majority in the rest of the world, 60% of the population around the world. And I'm cognizant of that here, whereas we are often made to feel like we are minorities. We are called my model minority. Um, the thing I miss about, uh, you know, I, I spent some time living and working in Asia in my early years after college. This, this, there's this whole dimension of things you don't have to worry about, like feeling othered when you're just trying to walk down the street or into a restaurant or, you know, in a meeting and, and this constant awareness, and it's not just as an immigrant, right. It's just all of us who are either, you know, marginalized groups. You just, there's, that's what I actually miss, right. About the times that I go back to Asia is, is this feeling that, uh, you aren't a minority. So
0: I can offer that. (laughs) I have to agree with that 100%. Just with this whole Stop Asian Hate movements that are taking place around the country right now, I just feel like this desire to be in Asia calling me uh, very strongly so I
2: but it's interesting definitely. that's the that's the reaction to us wanting to feel safe and mm-hmm. then the fighting side of me right the side of me that goes I'll be damned if my parents immigrated here in the 70s you know owned a Chinese restaurant and pays me and paid my tuition so I can be quiet <laughs> there's that beautiful American side of me and in CC's interview actually Mel I really heard that there's this awareness yeah. of immigrants that yes. we are very aware of how we are viewed by certain people who don't ever see us as American. Right. But in, a, in, in spite of that, you can also hear the gratefulness of her being able to raise her daughter in a country that she is now, you know, adopted part of and She loves,
1: I, I just it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> That's the story. A, right it's not, no, I, I totally understand that. It's something that as, a black woman born in America, you can kind of take for granted those certain type that there's a, a freedom that comes with literally not being politically targeted. And then when, when you, when you, you know, listen to her story, she's politically targeted years after the rest of her family has left, like her father's has, has left the country. Her, Her brother has left the country. She, she's there alone and still, So it was, but she has such an amazing spirit that I, there's a part of me that hates when this is put up on, you know, of course I can personalize it as a black woman because we have to deal with the strong black woman trope, whether you're American born or anywhere else. But then there's, there's also the, the, the idea of nobody should have to endure that. And then when they come to a place where they're seeking safety, there should be it, it you would hope that it would not be as stressful as it is. But the fact that she is, is in the fight was just so heartwarming and 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 maybe heartwarming is not the right word, but encouraging that she is standing up for herself. And and there are so many other different stories. Our um, super producer, Scott McTaggart, wrote an amazing article that you can find at resist.bot.news called Our American Stories, where it references, uh, we, we he references Dr. Uh, Kataki Desai, who had a completely different experience where she went years, 12 years attempting to get citizenship. And she was somebody who had had made significant impact on her community here in America. And yet it was not impossible for her to get citizenship. She finally um she finally moved to Canada and that's where she is now and is now a Canadian citizen. So I would recommend that everyone um, take a look at that article. You can find it again at resist.bot slash news. And that's um, Our American Stories. I also would be remiss if I did not thank our favorite Susan Stutz for uh, joining us with CeCe yesterday who always has the great questions and and, and, um, observations on social issues. Um, so we are going to, this, this story isn't going anywhere. Um, immigration is not going anywhere. Another thing I wanted to, um, to think about, we haven't really scratched the surface. If you think back when, uh, Melissa Thompson was here, when we talked about, um, disabled poverty, how with every story you have there's a dis, dis, there's an angle for disability in there. And we haven't even scratched what it's like to immigrate to this country when you're someone with a physical disability or any disability. So there are so many facets of this and we won't be leaving this story. There will always be an opportunity for us to discuss immigration because nothing says neighbors like our our neighbors from other countries. Um, So before we head out, I wanted to talk about the current events that we are having our eye on this week. Brian Laundrie, his remains were allegedly found after they had been searching for him for the last two months. Um, You may remember his uh, deceased girlfriend, Gabby Petito, went missing and then her remains were found on September 18th. Among other things, there was a domestic violence issue uh, with them where there was a call that just obviously ended in tragedy. And that is going to lead us next week. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And next week, we are going to have a guest and we will be discussing domestic violence and how it is handled in this country. So we hope that you guys join us next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Athena, wanted to kick it to you.
0: Sure, thanks. I am very excited about how labor unions are on the rise in the United States and support for unions are really taking off in this new world after we're sort of recovering from global pandemic or trying to. And um, from IATSE in Hollywood going on strike to just different laborers around the U.S. And which reminded me, it also ties into the fact that October is actually Filipino American Heritage Month and we would be remiss in discussing anything related to Filipino American history if we did not roll it back to Delano Grape Strike in the 1970s where Larry Itliong, Filipino American hero, uh, organized farmers at that time to go on strike and demand fair wages and um, access to basic things like restrooms for the farm workers at that time. by partnering with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, obviously, um, the United Farm Workers Movement was created through that work. So I celebrate and lift up all of my Filipino-American cababayans. And, um, again, as a time where unions are rediscovering their power in the COVID world, I think it would be absolutely beautiful to understand how that really ties into the power of the immigrant experience in the United States. So, um Happy Filipino-American <laughs> Heritage Month. I, I wish our, My wish for us all is that we continue to know our history and empower all of these marginalized communities to yeah. you know, claim our place and story in the fabric of American life. That's This is who we are. So we need to know these stories. We need to share these stories. We need to tell these stories. And I appreciate um, Christine's, and I appreciate CC's. and I, I look forward to hearing more as this podcast continues to evolve and develop.
1: Thank you so much, Athena. And Christine, we want to close out with you. Yeah, no, so I would just say check my
2: twitter feed because my current events are always current (laughs) i'm always reacting to (laughs) always reacting to things um that that and and it's a you know we all have diverse interests but specifically you'll hear me um still paying attention to the geopolitics of u.s china relations and actually that affects us so much here in the u.s um in regards to economics, in regards to just our feeling of safety. But, you know, my lens is, it is very difficult uh, being on this bridge of trying to both acknowledge criticism of a government that you disagree with, the you know, authoritarian regime, while making sure that we um, remember to differentiate the country's people from its government and the experience of Chinese Americans here right now and those who look Chinese to people who are otherwise ignorant it's real the anti-Chinese sentiment as we see the political tensions increase those that are you know ignorant uh, here in the U.S. Um, will 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 you know tend to increase their animosity towards certain groups of folks. And I think that's always unfair. So here we go. So, yep, that's what I wanted to share.
1: Thank you. Thank you both. I also want to thank our regular panel panelist, Susan Stutz for joining us special thanks to CC and also um, Dr. Kittake Desai. Thank all of you for sharing your stories. Thank all of you for joining us this week. I want you to remember that we are streaming on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube every Sunday, and video replays will be available. The podcast will go up in the early part of the week. I believe we are going up around Tuesday. Um, I am choking down, not making a reference to the club going up on a Tuesday. Uh, if you want to learn more about ResistBot, you can volunteer and donate at resist.bot. Um, and that's been our show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Have a great weekend. Rest.
4: ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message resistbot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating powerful public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. Resistbot is a non-profit social welfare company built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. Regular contributors include Melanie Dion, Athena Foulet, Susan Stutz, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, and Scott McTaggart. Thank you for listening.